Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Department of Homeland Security is going after some of the most in-demand tech talent in the world. DHS plans to build out a cadre of 50 artificial intelligence experts in the coming year. The agency's lead AI official is confident it can meet that goal. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more. And so a 50-person team for AI, what is their plan, Justin, at Homeland Security? Yeah, well, you know, if you look at President Joe Biden's artificial intelligence executive order, DHS has mentioned uh, 37 separate times. So they have a pretty big set of tasks under that EO. And what they want to do is build out a 50-person AI core that's modeled actually after the U.S. Digital Service. Eric Heisen is DHS's chief information officer and chief AI officer. He was actually among the founding members of DHS's digital service team a decade ago. He says modeling the AI core after the digital service will allow DHS to have kind of the central pool of technology talent that it can bring in quickly, perhaps more quickly than the traditional government hiring process. Heisen spoke at an event hosted by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum earlier this month, and I caught up with him afterward to talk about DHS's plan. We are taking a very aggressive recruitment approach with partnering with organizations all around the country and also rethinking the hiring process. Our Chico has been really outstanding at leveraging OPM's new direct hire authority and setting up a process that is going to move quickly and let us do the the right reviews to get these in-demand candidates through the process as quickly as we can. Now, artificial intelligence consists of many, many different skills. What is DHS specifically looking for, Justin? Yeah, if you look at DHS's job posting, and they have one catch-all job posting for all 50 of these positions, they're looking at folks who have advanced technical or policy knowledge in AI and machine learning, uh, folks who have experience integrating technology products with neural networks, high-performance computing networks, advanced data science technologies, and then also people who have led cross-functional teams, uh, including designers, product managers, data scientists again, or software engineers. Tyson says they're looking for some pretty senior-level talent. These people will be paid at the GS-15 level, which has a salary range of up to $191,000 before locality pay and things like that kick in. And no prior government experience or an active security clearance is necessary. So they're really reaching out to beyond kind of the traditional government folks here to perhaps the Silicon Valleys of the world. And what do they expect these people to do once they get on board? They'll initially join Heisen's office at DHS headquarters, and and then, in his words, they'll be farmed out across the department as needed. Again, kind of similar to the U.S. Digital Service. They'll work on discrete DHS missions, um, including countering fentanyl, combating child sexual exploitation and abuse, uh, delivering immigration services. Cybersecurity is another big one. DHS has been tasked with setting cybersecurity standards under the AI executive order and even doing things like customer service, streamlining disaster grants with FEMA. So there's a whole range of work that these people could eventually be working on. What about other agencies in the private sector? Everybody's recruiting this type of talent. You would think a U.S. digital service type thing would be centered, say, at the General Services Administration, which is where U.S. digital services actually is, I believe. What's their selling proposition, I guess, to recruit people, even at those salaries? Yeah, I asked Tyson that. I mean, obviously, DHS is competing with every organization in the world right now that deals in any kind of technology. Everyone wants an AI expert or a cadre 
of AI experts on their team. Heisen, of course, said it's an in-demand skill set, but he thinks that DHS can really offer a unique selling point for a lot of these candidates. It's an in-demand skill set, but when you think about the opportunity that you have at DHS, where else are you going to go where you can not just get to work on cutting-edge technology, but you can apply it to missions uh, like combating the flow of fentanyl into the United States, like uh, combating child sexual abuse and exploitation, uh, making it easier to become an American citizen. Uh, these are just such critical activities and we think that the, the appeal of the mission is going to be huge combined with the, the aggressive recruiting work that we're putting forward. Well, I guess it's going to take more than simply putting a prompt into a chat GPT to come up with how do you solve fentanyl. And so they're going to need some pretty decent, detailed expertise. How is DHS using AI now? If they are. Yeah, there's different flavors of AI, of course. Uh, DHS says it's already using machine learning models to actually detect fentanyl shipments at border checkpoints. So that's clearly one area they want to build out on. Uh, they're also using machine learning models to identify perpetrators in child sexual abuse cases. And FEMA is using machine learning to evaluate photos of uh, damaged homes and buildings when there's a natural disaster to help evaluate that that actual damage. And then there's also the large language models in ChatGPT that have kind of sparked this new wave of AI fervor. In October, DHS issued a policy on the use of commercial generative AI. It allows employees to use these tools as long as they follow certain rules, like not putting any protected DHS data into those systems. And, you know, Heisen says they're already starting to think more deeply about how they use these tools. He is one of those employees who started using large language models. He, a couple of weeks ago, said he put the big Senate supplemental bill into a large language model to see, hey, what do I have to do if this thing gets passed? How much funding is in here? Here's what he said. Well, first was such a long bill that it took some massaging to get it into the model. But the value that you see in interacting with things that we do every day at DHS, like thinking about legislation, is really tremendous. So I think we're seeing more and more of our employees understanding what value it can play and can bring and how they might leverage it. And did he also talk about employees need to know how to prompt a large language model? Because what you ask it and the way you ask it and maybe ask it in an iterative fashion will get you much closer to the output you want than simply saying, hey, what's in this bill that I need to care about, which it should answer with another question rather than with an answer. Yeah, I mean, Heisen did say that training for the use of AI and the responsible use of AI is going to be critical for DHS and not just this 15-person cadre, but you know all 200,000 plus, 260,000 employees who work across DHS, they're going to need some level of introduction and training on these tools to use them properly, responsibly, and, and probably in a way that actually helps them. Yes. And so would DHS then get, I guess, let's call them bare metal versions of these algorithms like GPT-4, and there's a bunch of them out there, so that they could train it only with DHS data instead of having it come in with the world's data, which can produce all kinds of oddball stuff. That remains to be seen how exactly DHS is going to be procuring tools, large language models specifically, to train it on their own data. Right now, their policy allows only for the use of commercial Gen AI tools using non-DHS data. So, of course, some of those more high-impact, uh, sensitive missions with sensitive data, they're going to have to work out how they're going to actually use these models for those. 
All right. Well, good luck to them. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's... Um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across 
geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening 
two very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.